Before you listen to this great episode of Partner with Survivor, we'd just like to tell you about a powerful new practice tool the Safe and Together Institute has launched. Our perpetrator pattern mapping tool has been available for 10 years, but now it's available for the first time in a web-based version. What it does is really help you map perpetrators' patterns of behavior onto child family functioning, talk about its intersections with mental health, substance abuse, and other issues, address intersectionalities, worker safety, all in an easy-to-use online package that protects the confidentiality of your information and lets you wrap it all up in a neat little package, basically, to print it out and to kind of document all those different pieces of information. This is a tool that can be used by both survivors and practitioners. And for the very first time, it's available immediately online without any other prior training. The training is embedded in this powerful practice tool so that teams uh, that have not been trained in Safe and Together can immediately begin mapping in an effective way. That's right. It's like having a safe and together coat in your back pocket is what I like to say. There you go. So we really encourage you to go to our virtual academy, academy.safetytotherinstitute.com. Check it out. You know, you can subscribe to it immediately or you can check out a free demo version for 30 days. So please reach out to us and try this new tool. Now enjoy this great episode of Partner with Survivor. back and we're back here we are again here we are again nice to see you nice to see you too <laughs> um this is partner with a survivor and i'm david mandel executive director of the safe and together institute and i'm ruth stearns mandel and i'm the e-learning communications and strategic relationship manager and this is our mini sewed series on worker safety and well-being. Let's see how many sewed this one's going to be, because I wa- I'm looking at the notes here. Yeah, the notes here are longer. We're talking about such an important topic, which is when workers have their own history of victimization, and that includes when they're currently being targeted by a partner or an ex-partner, mm-hmm. um, and its implications for for workplace safety and well-being. And employment. And employment. It's huge. It's a huge subject. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every organization has um, family me- family members, staff who have experienced domestic violence. Or are experiencing. Or are experiencing domestic violence. And course of control. That's right. They may be survivors of childhood abuse. Some of them are dealing with loved ones who are being abused right now. I mean, so it's it's active in their lives, even if they're not the primary victim. And many of these people are working within the domestic violence field or the child protection field or social services. That's right. And so we felt like it was really important to talk about this. And this is an issue that's been on my professional radar for years. And when I ran a, a, a statewide consultation initiative around uh, domestic violence that put domestic violence specialists inside child protection, they would come back to me and say, I was in my office today, I was in the restroom, and somebody came up to me and disclosed their personal experience of being abused right. or their current experience of being abused. Yeah. And it was in the bathroom because that was the private space. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to be seen going up to this person at their desk. Mm-hmm. And so that was really, you know, one of my earliest experiences with the intersection of, 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 being a domestic violence expert in a child protection space 
and workplace issues. And then since then, you know, workers from diverse entities have made direct disclosures to me um, about their own victimization, including how fears of their former partner's abuse was still shaping their current reality. And a lot of survivors have disclosed to me that they've worked in the domestic violence field and that they were re-victimized by their employers, their supervisors and managers, while they were being coercively controlled, stalked, threatened, and abused, because they were viewed as a liability to the organization, not the person who is abusing them. That's right. And I actually heard this recently where um, other workers made complaints because they felt like their colleague's situation was putting them in danger. Right. It was actually a complaint about the colleague. And that perpetrator wants to get that person That's fired. Right. That's right. And you allowing that to happen right. is handing them power right. and control. So we're, we're, you know, when we think about employee well-being and safety there, you know, as it relates to their personal situation, there's lots of layers here. I remember a, a young man, new worker in child protection, who was tasked with going out for the first time in his job meeting with a, a man who's identified as being violent, you know, father was violent. And he said to me very vulnerably and very honestly, he said, my dad was violent when I was growing up and I'm worried I'm going to freeze or go over the table. Right. Yes. And, and I appreciate his honesty so much. And that's the kind of thing that, that I, I really value. And, and I said, look, that makes sense. You're new at this job. You deserve your supervisor, your team leader to go out with you. Mm-hmm. On this first this first visit and support you and mm-hmm. but it was really striking. He he knew his stuff. He knew his issues going in, mm-hmm. and and then we um, we're hearing. Th- I mean, there's just so many things. This is why you said this is going to take so long. You know about workers being triggered about their own abuse situations by actually going through the safe and together model training. Yes. You know, which is so different than a lot of other trainings, which, which may be a higher level kind of generalities, the specificity, the behavioral nature Mm -hmm. of the model training is just reflecting their experiences. Yeah. We've had feedback from, from workers who have gone through the safe and together training that has, that said that in the course of the core training, they realized they were living in coercive control and it really emotionally impacted them that they had been living that way without the understanding of that because all of our practice is tilted towards violence. And so, you know, they had been living that way thinking, well, I'm not being domestically abused because he hasn't hit me yet. And that's right. so that's a that's that will rock your world a little bit. Yeah, and and I think that we, we here we're talking right a little bit about how how the 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 safety together model training can actually help with this, and and mm-hmm. and we're also hearing on a positive note, mm-hmm. it, agencies that t- took on safety together training as a way to deal with clients, helping them become more domestic violence informed in their human resources policies, and actually not being punitive. We're actually hearing this from more than one agency, where we're a survivor whose performance was suffering, who was either going to be let go or fired or 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 disciplined, well, it, if, reframing it for well, them. Well, if you think about it, and and we, I shall not name the entity. Like I'll allow you to frame it as anonymized as possible. But having worked 
with a very large military organization who viewed domestic violence perpetration as an operational readiness issue for their workers, that's, you know, their soldiers, but right. workers. Yeah. We have seen that the interventions of Safe and Together actually keep domestic violence victims employed that's right. at a greater rate. That's right. They are retained at a greater right. rate because the the, the the accountability is placed on the person choosing that behavior. Right. And that's the person who should right. be fired. Right. That's the person who should be, uh, you know, uh, dismissed, right. not the person who's experienced. That's right. And we're seeing, we're seeing this ability to connect performance issues back to the perpetrator's behavior as being critical to agency be, agencies being domestic violence informed in their response to this. So so the, the problem of domestic abuse coming to work. So this there was all kind of context and you know some of the, the connections we've we've had over the years is perpetrators will engage in behaviors that cause survivors to miss time at work, like taking the car or stopping her from leaving or making her worried that children will be unsafe if if she leaves. I mean just and actually I started writing this. It's really interesting. I had a little 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 uh brain fart because i started writing it as saying oh this will show up as performance issues for survivors i said wait a second we need to reframe it as perpetrators we behaviors. do and you also have to you also have to realize that survivors will respond out of concern and trauma for their children and they will engage in behaviors which will seem like performance issues like they will need to call home to make sure that the children are okay. That's right. They will need to use your company phones to check up on their children's That's welfare. Right. That's right. They will. Th there will be distractions because of the fear and concern, and the fact that that person doesn't have um, safety. And I think about, for example, the 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 woman here in the United States who child protection took her children, and she was fired from her job because she had to leave her children in a hotel room because she was evicted because of her partner's violence. She didn't have childcare. And instead of giving her childcare, they took her children. That is the most ridiculous thing. And, and her employer fired her. And this is, these are the employment realities that survivors are living in. Right. So when agencies that are dealing with domestic violence uh, are addressing child safety issues, they're dealing with the same issues in their workforce when they have survivors. And they're often doing the same things. That's right. To victims of abuse. So let's make let's continue to make the, the behaviors of perpetrators visible as it relates to the workplace. So, you know, unwanted, often repeated calls to the workplace, showing up at work, you know, stalking and surveillance behaviors that may make somebody fearful to be out in the community. I mean, I think about workers whose job is to do home visits and drive around the community. Mm-hmm. And thinking about if you're being stalked, you're fearful about being found by somebody, your visibility in the community is is can be very scary. So so that's about the surveillance and stalking by the perpetrators. Accusations of affairs if she's meeting alone with male clients. Oh, it's you know, so common. Yeah, just sort of anything like that. So, you know, and, and so again, so it, it, it it's at the back of that person's mind. You know, how am I going to deal with this? Is this going to happen again today? And then when the professional, so this is really important to me, when professionals work for agencies like child protection or the courts um, uh, or law enforcement, right. you know, and they're victims, right. uh, the threats by the perpetrator to call the police, to call child protection, carry extra shame 
and fear of losing your job or, or employment consequences. So there's 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 so many instances of uh, female police officers who are partnered with a male police officer where there is a discharge of a weapon during the 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 assault of that per- person and the perpetrator knows that if that person discharges their weapon that they are going to get they're going to get held accountable for it much more than they will be held accountable for their violence in that situation. even if the perpetrator was even a, if the perpetrator, perpetrator was the one who discharged the, one who discharged discharged the, the weapon. weapon right so they use that right. in order to get them fired from their right. job right so 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 you know i have particular attention to you know those professionals out there who are victims who are working in these very specific agencies right. even if you work for a refuge that right. could be a fear of yours because to be exposed as being a victim when you're working to help other victims can have a tremendous amount of shame associated with it. Yeah. So, and that becomes a powerful weapon for the perpetrator to use. Um, and, and so what we're talking about is, you know, indicators of this might be missed days at work, lateness, being distracted, unable to focus at work, uh, irritability with coworkers, feelings of being overwhelmed. Lack of childcare. Lack of child Needing care. To bring children to work with you. That's right. Which is called unprofessional. Right. By your, so all sorts of things. Also know. implications. And again, so we're saying this because it's, it's going to be part of what we see in a few minutes about um, how agencies can respond. But we also have su- survivors who may have strong reactions, often labeled as unprofessional, to domestic violence survivors or perpetrators they're working with yeah. on their caseload. Right. And, uh, and again, so we're... All these things are the impact of perpetrators' behaviors as it intersects with workplace environments, and this is not all of them. This is just this is just what we can fit into this to this episode, this 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 <laughs> this minisode. So, what can agencies do? Um, it's so important that workplace human resource policies explicitly make a connection between coercive control. And employee performance. Yeah, it's not enough to just say we want our workers to be safe. Mm-hmm. We want our workers. We respond well to domestic violence because there's such a strong linkage between employee performance and them being victims. And we want to kind of support folks who are being abused or going through this. That we have to have this immediate sense of performance issues may be caused, even if I have no inkling, there may be some connection here. Right, and that needs to be laid out in the policy. Um, and, and also what needs to be laid on the policy is how perpetrators target workers at the workplace as a powerful form of control. Yes. It has to be named in the policy because if we understand domestic violence to be coercive control and it's about entrapment and deprivation of liberties and economic control and, and it, uh, targeting somebody's employment is a, such a common tactic, it's not enough to just say, oh, this is what domestic violence survivors experience. It's we as a workplace, as domestic violence informed, need to be aware right. that we might be targeted. Not just that. Agencies, organizations, HR needs to have a policy around how they hold their own employees accountable if they are perpetrating. That's right. We do not need to wait for somebody to sexually assault us or abuse other people physically for us to fire a worker. If a person has a pattern of behaviors which is toxic to the mission and vision of that organization, that organization under most circumstances 
has every right to redress. And this notion that we need to wait for somebody to have a violent criminal incidence when they've been reported by multiple people as being sexually assaultive or coercively controlling or harassing or threatening is absolutely unacceptable. This should not continue and policies should be made around the behaviors of workers in those environments in order to protect other people from perpetration. So it has to be a two-pronged uh, No, I, I completely agree with you. And I think a lot of environments, you not only is, you know, like it, might somebody at work be using the resources and the assets of, of, to, of the workplace to abuse somebody That's who's right. not a worker. Many times people have relationships with colleagues. And, you know, I've seen this in prison environments, law enforcement, like you yes. said, child protection, other places where there's a lot of camaraderie. And there's often a sense of you'll understand me yes. if you're another police officer, you're uh, uh, another corrections officer. And so there's a sense of family there. And so we see a lot of those relationships and therefore we see a lot of abuse in those environments. Yes. And and so you're absolutely right. This, this is, well, that's not the primary focus of, of, of. Uh, the, some of the ways agencies can respond, it well, absolutely has to be there. I'm, well, we have to focus on the perpetrator, That's right? right? We can't just That's focus right. on the survivor. No, no, I, I agree we with you. We have to focus right. on having a plan around how to hold the perpetrator accountable if they're inside of your organization. That's right. that's right. And I understand that that's challenging for governmental agencies that have a hard time firing people. That's right. And I understand that it's difficult in unionized situations. Right. But those policies have to take right. into consideration accountability. And, and the agency needs to articulate all these things, what you just said, because it, it's not just reactive. It needs to be proactive. It needs to be part of the screening. It needs to be part of the 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 interviewing process. It needs to be Does a part this person have a pattern of behaviors of sexual abuse, harassment? Do they have multiple allegations right. against them in multiple settings? Right. Maybe they're not the best fit for your organization. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if they have a criminal conviction or an arrest, or not. And so all this, that, and, and then also how the response of the agency is going to be to somebody being a survivor needs to be articulated, including how performance concerns will be addressed and handled sensitively and in the context of abuse, if that's what's going on. Right. Um, and, and this is, again, I, I feel so strongly about this, particularly I relate to our OIDV work, but also as we work with child protection, we have responsibility, agency have responsibility to proactively communicate their policies, how they're not going to judge staff who are being victimized, how they're actually going to handle, like if you're in child protection or law enforcement, handle those situations of abuse with sensitivity, confidentiality, uh, because it disarms the threat from the perpetrator. For me, it's this idea it's not enough to respond well. It's, it, we want to say to a survivor, don't be afraid. If your partner calls us and makes false allegations or reports you right. or sets you up, we're going to be smart enough. Use your we're going to be savvy enough. Use your enough. privilege as a business right. and an organization to report that person to the police if that's what right. the victim wants. Right. Use your privilege that's and right. your power. And, and so be a partner and let them know you're going to be a partner in their safety and the safety of their kids. Right. If if the perpetrator tries to target your employment. Yes. That's something you say at the interview. It's something you say when you hire. <laughs> it's something you put in on a poster in the bathroom. It's something you communicate over and over again 
through meetings because it's it's about the safety and well-being of your workers. Um, I, we just saw something about ISO rules and 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 greater requirements in organizations mm-hmm. around workers' psychological and, and physical safety. So maybe we'll talk more about that in another mm-hmm. another uh, another episode. But things like the policy itself must be responsive. Like, can somebody be reassigned to a different geographic location because they're being stocked where they are? Or is there a rotation of schedules, flex schedules, so I can change up my hours mm-hmm. so I'm less likely to be tracked or stalked by mm-hmm. by um, uh, the perpetrator? Um, is uh, the staff, the, tr- the, the managers, the supervisors, the team leaders, the HR personnel trained to handle these items consistently with policy um, and to really kind of, again, when poor performance shows up, is it something they consider universally as a possibility and explore versus waiting for somebody to share it with them? Um, and then lastly for, for this episode is, um, you know, I've seen really good policy where people say, well, you can get uh, approved leave time to go for a protection order hearing, you know, or a criminal court case. But to make sure that extends to family, family court, court, yes, family oh, court, God. you know, evaluations, maybe counseling with your kids because you know, again, really think about the ripple effects of the perpetrator's behavior. Right. Kids may be forced into counseling because they need it because of the perpetrator's violence. How does that agency support that survivor in their needs, the needs of their kids, yeah. when abuse has really heightened so many issues? Uh, legal issues, mental health issues, all these things. So again, I think we're really trying to envision a domestic violence informed agency that really cares for its staff who are experiencing abuse at the hands of a partner or ex-partner. Right. Or experiencing abuse from a coworker as well. That's right. That's a very important place where we have to talk about Mapping that perpetrator's patterns of behaviors in light of your organization's mission and vision and goals and asking how you can hold that person accountable safely. Um, that's a really important thing for organizations to start doing. That's right. All right. So here we are. We did it 20 minutes. It's a little bit, longer, a little than bit the longer than the other. Ones. But but pretty good. So you've been listening to Partner with a Survivor. I'm David Mandel, Executive Director of the Safe and Together Institute. And I'm Ruth Stearns Mandel, I'm the Ear Learning Communications and Strategic Relationships Manager. And if you want to learn more about the Safe and Together Institute, you can go to our website, safetogetherinstitute.com or our virtual academy, academy.safetogetherinstitute.com. And please Follow us on all the platforms. We've got a new social media guru that's going to be whipping up our social media digital plan. <laughs> and so you, you'll be able to find us all sorts of places, including TikTok. 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 Wonderful. All right. All right. And we're out. And we're out. 